Twitter. Welcome to Inside Baseball with Old Chestnut. I'm Liam Allen without my friend Morris Sachs. But as you know, for all the listeners out there that have been there for a hundred weeks, something special is about today. You already know from the song. Okay, we've never, ever done this before. So you know you're in for a special Sunday. Thank you for tuning in and spending your afternoon with me again. I got a lot of feedback about last week both ends of the spectrum, but I miss my friend Morris, but this weekend we called in a favor and I called in a favor to a friend of ours, someone that is very, very familiar to the audience of Inside Baseball with All Chestnut, and that's none other than one Leslie Harris. Thank you very much, Leslie, for answering my last in it email Saturday afternoon with an emergency, you know, an emergency favor. And lo and behold, here we are Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon, and you have graced us with your presence. And I am internally grateful for you. Uh, you're very kind. And uh, I'd like to say I've gotten a lot of kindness and respect and love on this program much of which it will now be shown to be undeserved in the next hour. Uh, so thank you for that. And uh, I kind of feel like it, for your audience, like they're expecting Hetty Topper and like Michelob Ultra is turning up. So uh, it's a little, uh, little disappointing for them, but I'll do the best I can. They get, they get what they pay for. Um, 
And let me just say this, like, let me just build the foundation for the audience. And let me just give you my relationship with Leslie, um, which has just been nothing short of a gift. OK, and I believe it started via emails because Morris would add Leslie or me to emails that he felt were pertinent, that our interests overlapped. And Leslie tolerated my snarky comments and, you know, idiotic punchlines. But. I also started to get lessons from them. Like I would chirp about Tesla and I'll never forget you saying you can't have a grudge with the market. And like, you might be right. And you, you've absolutely buried me, buried me on that topic, but you've kept me honest. And I have learned so much. There's so many tidbits that you have given me where they just ring in my ears. Whenever I look at that godforsaken T logo, I think <laughs> you're saying you can't have a grudge with your market. And your mother saying it's a tough way to make a living. You have just been, you have been my my Torah, okay? Thank right. you, Barry. You're very kind, but you know, uh, you know, I just do the best I can, or as your co-host would say, just try to call balls and strikes. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So let me get. Like, By the way, he really loves the Hamptons, doesn't he? <laughs> it just it really suits him, okay? You know, you just, that that's really his 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 territory, his kill zone, okay? Um, let me just let me give the people the background. I'm going to operate under the assumption that they might not have listened to you on the market huddle. So okay. I just want to give you a little bit of history. And I want to start in Queens. OK, because I have such an affection for Queens. I have friends for Queens. I lived in Belrose briefly. And it is just it is the one borough of New York City that has produced so many luminaries across so many different industries, whether it's Wall Street, Hollywood, fashion, legal people. It's just incredible. The people that have come from Queens from your era, it has just produced such incredible talent and people that are just just famous and successful. And like whenever I see Queens on a resume or I read a Wikipedia about some powerful you know person, I see early life. They were born in Queens in 1942. It's just a factory for high quality people. Well, and you were lucky. You were born there, right? Yes, I, I was born in a hospital in Manhattan, but I was raised in Queens. And I think there's something interesting about Queens uh, because it's, it still is. You know, it's always been the borough for immigrants. And uh, your audience may or may not know, it's like it's the county which currently the most uh, languages are spoken in the United States because there are just so many immigrants there. Uh, when I grew up, it was the same thing, but just was a different brand of immigrants. Like my I'm first generation. So my dad is Czechoslovakian. My mother was Hungarian and they lived in Manhattan. And the aspirational thing was when you had enough for a down payment on a house uh, where these new houses being built in Queens. You left the Upper West Side or Washington Heights and you went there. So on the block that I grew up in, there was the German immigrant and the Czech immigrant, the uh, American Union labor organizer who eventually had to go to summer camp for a couple of times. Uh, my parents, you know, there was a, an Italian guy living with his mother who was growing lemon trees in the backyard, uh, a Greek family uh, guy who another American guy who had been a POW in uh, World War II. So it was the kind of place where people were very scrappy, for lack of a better word. And, you know, if you grew up in those kind of households and with uh, those kind of people, there was an expectation of you that you needed to make something of yourself. And uh, I think that was really pervasive. And I even think about the kids I played with growing up, you know, everyone sort of like, you know, you have to go to school and like, you know, your, your parents were working to pay the Morgans and send you to college, hopefully one day. And that was it. There was nothing, nothing warm and fuzzy other yeah. than that. Yeah. And the expectations were that you're supposed to go out in the world and, and do something. I think that's, you know, why you have that kind of affection. You kind of see that kind of, uh, you know, the I won't call them luminaries, but people go out there and, you know, they know how to tough it out. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just to me, to me, it's just, it's, it's evidence of, of, of where they grew up, that that culture has just carried on through their lives. And I guess like you're a good example that stuck with you. Um, so walk me through this. You grow up in Queens. What, how old are you exactly? Are you 62, 60? I'm, uh, I throw up in my mouth. I'm 64. As a matter of fact, I was thinking when you uh, were playing the intro, first time I saw the Talking Heads, it was when they were promoting their 77 1977 talking at 77 the album i saw them in a bar in upstate new york and then i, I saw them in a social club afterwards yeah. and i kind of always like that's like oh 77 that's a long that's a long time ago so yeah so i'm 64 i just turned 64 
Okay, so you go you you go to before we get to Binghamton. Where did you go to high school? You went to Xavarian or something like that? No, I went to a Jewish high school in Manhattan. So I took two uh, bus and two subways every day uh, to Manhattan, uh, which was actually great because, like Queen, like I said, Queens wasn't cool back then. Like now, it's sort of cool. It was not cool. So the the notion that I would be able to wake up every day in this wonderland that was Manhattan was just incredible. And then once I figured that. I didn't actually have to turn up at school every day. You know, like I could just like do shit. That was really, really fantastic. So that, and we we did a lot of stuff at night and, you know, we'd go hear music and go see shows and stuff. So it was really a great place to be 17, you know, or eight, you know, 16, 17. But, you know, the funny thing is like people, this is the seventies and, you know, uh, I'm not nostalgic for the seventies. I mean, I think New York has got changed a lot, but you know, it was a little bit of a dangerous place. And if you, I, I like to joke around, like, so I'd be out and about in, uh, you know, Manhattan and I have to get home to Queens and like, you'd sort of like do your risk profile, you know, like <laughs> if I, you know, what bad thing could happen to me on the E train tonight? And, you know, so you put your money in two different pockets and was like I said, I, I don't long for those days, but uh, you know, the city was a different place back then. Absolutely, absolutely. But what a place to learn and to grow yeah. up. Like you, you, it was that, it was it was great. It was a great place to be seventeen and, and hanging around. And then how? So then you go to Binghamton. How do you get from Manhattan? How do you? How did you get stuck up in Binghamton? Which is what is that? Uh, one of many poor, poor choices. I, I sort of, you know, the, the to put it simply, the relationship at home was a little complicated mm-hmm. and. Uh, Binghamton at that point was $400, $425 a semester, and I had a $125 region scholarship. So that seemed like a good, a good Absolutely. call. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, hey, let's not back. It's a, it's a good school now. It was Absolutely. It's very desired. It was the best state school then. It's the best state school now. But the difference is now it's a very desirable place to go. Absolutely. It was full of smart kids uh, back then, most of whom like, went to bed every night and said, I should have gone to Cornell. I wish I got into Cornell. I wish I could. But uh, yeah, the state of New York is no place to be. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it's well, beautiful during the summer, but yeah, when well, it's all Binghamton's waiting. a very good engineering school. It's a, it's a SUNY school. I would send my kid to Binghamton in a heartbeat. You don't get to yeah, it's, it's, I couldn't get in there now, that's for sure. Wow. Uh, very good nursing school. We love the nurses. Yeah, very oh, good. that's incredible. All right. So after Binghamton now, did what did you know? What did you want to do when you're done with Binghamton? How do you get from Binghamton back down to Wall Street? Walk me through. Well, that. Uh, like I like to say, I spent a lot of time in Binghamton working in restaurants and hotels and stuff. And I got back to New York and I thought I wanted to be in the restaurant business. So I ended up getting a job managing a restaurant uh, in Greenwich Village, uh, a big restaurant at the time. And uh I did that for a while until I realized like that was really a terrible way to make a living. You know, like working in restaurants is fun. Running a restaurant is terrible. And trying to make money in a restaurant is terrible, as you know very well. Thank you. Um, uh, so I decided I wanted to get a job on Wall Street. And I think some of this I've, t- I've spoken about in the past. And I, I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody. And... Um, you know, I, I want to do anything. So I basically went around and said, I, I'm happy to work in the back office. I'll do anything. I'll be a clerk or whatever. And back then, there weren't too many people with college educations who said they wanted to work in the back office of a wirehouse. Yep. So um, I got in this management training program at a company at the time called Shearson Lehman American Express. That's a mouthful. Wow. And um I got, it was interesting because, and I was very grateful to have a job. I was, I looked, it took me a while to get the job and I was very, very happy. And, um, you know, I got to, I learned how to be a margin clerk. I worked in a place called The Cage, which is where they, you know, handle municipal bonds and uh, DDP clerk. And this was a very, this is pre-computers essentially when it was very labor intensive and a bunch of people from Brooklyn and Staten Island and me you know, working, you know, pushing around reams and reams and reams of paper. But there was a kid in my program, and a guy named Bob, as a matter of fact, I remember him well. He said to me one day, you know, I have some friends on the floor of the commodities exchange. Do you want to go down and get us a tour? And um, I, so I go down there and I, I, I tell the story that it was like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, like the whole Wall Street thing went from black and white to color. And it was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is this. this? 
Yeah. And I basically, um, I, again, I didn't have any contacts, but I, I called someone, a friend of a, someone I knew, said, I, I can't help you out, but this guy, call this guy Eddie. So I go down, I see this guy, Eddie, and he sizes me up and, you know, whatever. He goes, okay, come like, come on Monday, you know, you can be a runner. So I, I basically quit the job at the wirehouse and uh, go down on the floor and I start as a runner on the commodities exchange in the gold ring. Yeah, it's fantastic. Incredible. So you're out of college. You got your degree from Binghamton. You're 21, 22. And you're 22. -ish, yeah. Incredible. And so you get, so Eddie takes you under his wing and you, what, you're just, you're a runner. You go, Hey, you can work yeah. on. Uh, you, you're, you're, it's like you, you're a runner. You take the, the tickets out of the booth. Uh, you give the big tickets to uh, Charlie, you give the medium tickets to uh, Bobby, you give the small tickets to Greg, and then the guys who are shouting orders from the perch, they're shouting in the words, and then you got to get the tickets from them, and then you give them to the appropriate person. And it was it was great. And then I, you know, came up through the ranks there and became, I, I held the book, and then I became an art clerk, and uh, eventually I took Eddie's job like, a couple of years later. But it was, uh, you know, when I think back on it, it was the greatest education for learning about the markets ever because you you lived and breathed them every day. You ingested them. And it was funny. I was thinking about this before uh, our call today. And I remember, like, you start there as a runner and it's a cacophony of chaos and you have no fucking idea what's going on. And then there's, like, the one day where, like, oh, you hear the market. And it was like, oh, it's 30 bit at half, 30 bit at half, half bit, half bit 70. And there's sort of like, it changes where it's no longer chaos. You actually understand what's happening. And it, it was really, I remember that, you know, and, uh, and then you spend a couple of years, you know, you can wake somebody up in the middle of the night and they'll go 30 bit at half, you know, it's, uh, yep. and you did it all day, um, five days a week and sort of, uh, you know, Mars talks about being able to hear when the the echo of the market would change and that things were happening and they're like a quiet roar. And that was really the case. And uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And uh, I loved it. And okay. what I used to say is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like we'd so we'd be in it all day and then we'd check out the business and then we'd go over to Eddie's house and, you know, drink beers and we would go through the whole day's trading again. It was like, and I've mentioned this on the other, it was like breaking down game film. And there was, you know, there was no YouTube. There was no- Of course. Nothing. So you learned it. It was like today they would call it, you know, your HR director would call it experiential training. Of but it was just, like I said, it was hanging out with the fellas and just going through the day's business. And, you know, why did someone do something you know, there, you know, there were some big locals, you know, when Owen did this and, you know, Melty did that, like what was really going on. And, uh, you know, I have to say it, invaluable education and I loved it and it was great and uh, it was really fun. Yeah, they talk about getting 10,000 hours to be yeah. able to something. And you must have gotten, if you were doing 80 hours a week as a 22-year-old kid and you didn't have any bad habits, you didn't have any kids, you didn't have a wife at the time. So you were yeah. just a, a mold. And, and to be immersed like that, dude, the idea that you would get the job, for like for, for people my generation, to, to, the idea that you would buddy up with somebody and they'd be like, show up on Monday. Okay, now you got to go through headhunters, interviews. You got to be, you got to nail the interview and so on. But the fact that you could walk in and say, show up on Monday. And then you've told that story about the combos and the way that you, the way that you finessed everything and that you, you know, you played the game and you, yeah. yeah. That and, he, and the thing about that is like, you know, you're working with some, you know, very tough characters, you know, because alpha males, this, this is alpha the males who's, it was their money on the line. It was like, talk about skin in the game. It was like the ultimate skin in the game. And, you know, you learned, you know, not to make mistakes and you became very exacting and very, um, you know, very precise. And because people would literally bite your fucking head off if yeah. you made a yeah. mistake. Because yeah, well, if you make a mistake, it costs somebody the money. Yeah.
Yeah, you make it once and you remember it. I'm sure. I'm sure. But like that analog learning, I said this to Morris. The, the fact that Morris did, like, he worked in Chicago in the pit when it was analog and it was the hand signals. And he's when he talks and I sit and he sometimes can't stop himself and he's doing this with his hands. Like to be able to learn that, like the kids, a kid, I don't say kids, but like guys nowadays that got into it in a digital world and don't have that that feeling where, like you said, when you can feel the momentum or the energy in the pit or the market changing and the, the cacophony of sound is an indicator and to feel like you have your finger on the pulse, like for you to learn that in New York in those at like such a young formative age to me is like, it just, it puts you above everyone else that like that valuable experience can't be bought or learned in a classroom or or gotten off a computer screen. It's just, it's just an incredible like gift and skill that you nailed the timing on that. I did. And, 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 you know, um, the notion of hard work was also pretty important, which was ingrained in you. Like there were the tall, there was no tolerating bullshit, you know, the bullshit thing just didn't, you know, yeah, you didn't. Have, no, you didn't one, have, no one had time for that. You didn't have managing directors taking pictures on yachts and like living the party life. This was a blue collar. We're gonna dig ditches, kind of. We're gonna, you know, we're nose to the grind. This wasn't for. This wasn't for pretty boys and, no. and the Hampton, the no. Hampton set that it is now. No, it was not. It was not. But it was great training. It was great, great training for me. And 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 did you love that? Did you love that 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 hand to hand combat where like were you or were you like I got to get out of here? This is too much. I you know I, no there were people I, and I did see this. I, you know, for some people, it was very much too much. And I saw people like quit in the course of a day and just like, uh, I can't take the pressure. But yeah. uh, I, you know, I liked it, but I I did. I I saw that there might have been more for me. Like I, I could have made my career down there. I think I would have been OK, because I think eventually the smart people gravitated to the crude oil pits, which became really, really important shortly after like in the late eighties and then on. But, and I think that's where like the smart younger guys were going. Um, but I kind of wanted, like, I thought it was going to be limiting. I thought that would be my only, uh, that would have been it. And I could have been one of those guys, but that's all I could have become. And uh, it was a period of time where, which has fluctuated back and forth on wall street where uh, there've been times where you needed an MBA to get a job. And there are times you haven't been, and it was at that juncture that you needed to get an MBA. And uh, I decided, I, you know, that that's what I was going to do. Uh, it was not a well-informed decision, but it, I just saw, like, I could either stay here, and I know what my path is, or I can have, a, you know, multiple runways. And I went, uh, I, shocking to as many people as myself, you know, I got accepted to a prestigious MBA program and, uh, you know, at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, believe it or not, another school I certainly could not get into today. The uh, okay. but, uh, and I was there for, you know, two years. And, you know, I, best thing that happened, I always say I met my wife there 30, 37 years ago this month uh, in the summer of 1985. Uh, and, uh, you know, MBA school is really just a two year job search. That's what my question was. I was going to say, was it worth it or was that the, or was the network, was it more with the networking or did the MBA program at Wharton, did you, was that really enlightening? Did that bless you with knowledge that you carried for life? Or was it like I met so-and-so and and now I know so-and-so and and I know how to work? Well, again, because I'm, I'm not so smart. I didn't spend a lot of time networking, you know, which was a missed opportunity, but uh, there it's funny. It's like the things that are valuable in that program are things that you don't pay attention to at the time, which in hindsight are valuable things about organizational behavior and about management and stuff that, you know, is probably valuable. The stuff, the rest of the stuff was for me, the finance stuff. My wife was a marketing person. She learned a tremendous amount and she, you know, had had a great career and did a lot of very cool things when she was there. The finance guys were, everyone's just looking for a job and just, um, and, uh, you know, like I like to say, your first semester, you learn about accounting. Second semester, you look for a summer job. Third semester, uh, you look for a full-time job. And the fourth semester, you buy clothes for your full-time job. But, uh, and I, but I shouldn't, you know, but again, I think those, I think Wharton's a different place right now. I think it's a place for entrepreneurs and, you know, people starting companies. And back then, it was a Wall Street um, employment agency. 
And you went from there to, and now what? You made a seamless transition. You got a job. You Wharton launched you to your first job at the investment bank. Yes, I got recruited uh, after a very long recruiting period at you know a very prominent, not to be named, but you, your audience is clever enough. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, investment bank. And um, yeah, that was very, and again, much to the surprise of uh, my cohort at uh, at, um, at Wharton, because I, like, I, like I said, I didn't go to Brown or, or Princeton. I didn't do a two-year, um, you know, analyst program at Merrill Lynch or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was a period of time where they just started really uh, recruiting for what was called sales and trading back then. And, you know, I could hold up my end of a conversation about financial markets, you know, at, at, as a 27-year-old because I spent a couple of years listening to people, you know, and learning a lot. So I got a, I got a job at a very prestigious place and I got thankfully put in the foreign exchange trading area, which was uh, quickly becoming uh, a very interesting place to work and was really as your... your uh, competing podcast hosts would say it was really the golden era of what was called macro trading. And uh, some of that has to do with um, people understanding, and it was the genesis of really proprietary trading at these firms. And that came out of the foreign exchange area, both at this place and other places as well. And it was, I was lucky enough to be around where the idea of making money other than market making to customers was by positioning risk on behalf of the firm. Uh, and I was in some cases in the right place at the right time. And I was the right person. For wow. that time. Yeah. And what year is this exactly? This is what this is 1987. 87. So you're in, you get hired by this investment bank. Now, let me go. Um, you moved to Manhattan. Walk me through, walk me through a day in the life as a, you're 27, 28. You're still, oh, you've met your wife. Did you get married? No, we didn't get married for a couple of years, but. Okay. But you're solid. You're not out carousing. No, 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 you're squared away. You were squared away. And I, you know, I would like to say like, there was a lot of, um, a lot of things that you could have fallen into on the floor of the commodities exchange. And I did see several lives ruined, and I was lucky that I just didn't have a big appetite for that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? but, mm-hmm. And if you did, you were really in trouble. Yeah, burn at both ends and, of the stick. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But a day in life in the 80s, I mean, back then, you work out. So I was at the desk, you know, by 20 to 7 every day. And uh, at the beginning, I had a senior uh, a guy I worked with, and we were partners, so to speak. Uh, and I, I did that for a little while. But then, you know, Day in the life was, you know, you get up. I was, I'll, I'll move to where I was became a proprietary trader, and uh, I was very lucky. I worked with two guys, one very different, both older than me, and I was like, I had no business doing this. Like, like I, I, to say I didn't know jack shit. Like I like to say, like it's an insult to jack shit. But mm-hmm. I was able, you know, what I did have was I had an appetite for risk, which not everybody did. Uh, because the risk was available and not everybody took it. And um, I was, I wasn't afraid, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of losing money. And uh, somebody very early in my career, one of the two guys I worked with at that time, he said, you know, you got to learn to like your losses. And if you understand that, that, that the losses are part of the equation. And if you like your losses, you maybe you learn something but they're going to happen no matter what. So if you're going to be incapacitated by them, you know, you're, you're fucked. You know, that's, so. that's so fascinating because it's so contrarian to, um, I'm going to take sports, for example, where they say, if you're ever a good loser, like you, you like being a good, I'm not saying you're saying a good loser, but to love the loss where they're like, if you don't hate your losses and they don't keep you up at night, you're, you know, you're a failure and you can, that's not the right mindset, but you're, you, you have the, totally the contrarian look at it like can you expand on that talk about like love your losses and like you know some of this some of this you know you know makes a lot more sense 35 years later of at course. the time i didn't, didn't really get it but you know to move forward fast forward 40 years you know when i think about those things it's like 
one of the best lessons I learned and took me a long, long time to do it. It's like, when you're making money, you're never as smart as you think you are. And when you're losing money, you're never as dumb as you think you are. This is assuming you're, a prof- as, as your colleague would say, a professional trader. Of course. Uh, you're never as stupid as you think you are. And if you're able to sort of navigate that mindset, then you're just sort of doing your job. And you're just sort of doing your job. And you sort of like stay on the even keel, you know, like straight moving forward. And you're not get sidetracked. You're not sidetracked because you're smart. You're not sidetracked because you're stupid. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and I'm just like I'm fascinated by like you weren't afraid to lose the money. Like like how did you go from that? I would think that a kid going into a big high profile name investment bank like that would would have some sort of hesitation. But like you you just you just didn't you wouldn't have a shy trigger finger, huh? You know what? It it was partly I have to say that. It might have been the times where people like everybody was trying to figure their shit out. Like it was like, I won't say, I don't like this expression, the wild west. It wasn't the wild west because it was, everything was measured and it was, you know, people knew what they were doing. But this is again, like 1989, 1990. And people were just figuring out this proprietary trading thing on their own. Like everybody was trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. The firms were trying to figure it out. The individuals were trying to figure it out. You had friends in London who were trying to figure it out. Uh, so, and again, some folks had no appetite for it. And if you did, you know, you, I would say you were given more latitude than you should have been given back then. And, you know, in hindsight, like I would not give 29 year old Leslie, you know, you know, take on as much as you'd like, you know, have at it, have at it. Right. But you know, that, like I said, people were trying to figure that whole business out. And it was really the genesis of, of all that. And again, there was a lot to do. I mean, this is the, also the, the the thing to remember that, you know, it was, you know, this is when the wall was coming down. This is when, you know, Japan was Japan. They were making gung-ho movies. And, you know, you know, there was there was no euro. There were 13 other currencies around. You know, there were central banks right and left. There was devals, revals. So there was sort of this idea or I remember this freedom that if you lost money, there was going to be another fat pitch coming. Like, you know, there was always so much to do back then that, you know, like, oh, well, we'd say, oh, there was, we had this expression. Well, you know, maybe they'll do like a yen thing. Like that meant like the yen would move five handles in mm-hmm. two days. Like, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe it's a yen thing. Like it was, uh, like I said, there were just a lot of opportunities. So if you did lose money, you always felt like you had a shot to make it back. Uh, fairly different than today and that was that a cult was that a the the culture at the firm that you were at at the time was that a it was beginning it was the genesis of that culture and uh, the people who were around there at that time went on to have very senior roles uh at that place uh both uh both in leading um divisions and leading uh you know big arms of the firm and eventually leading the entire firm Incredible. Yeah. That's just the formative years of, of modern day trading the way someone yeah. like me knows it. Whereas yeah. you've, I, I always love that Morris, you guys, to me, that is the perfect arc that you have captured. You know, you've captured the analog working in the cage and that, and doing it by hand and pen and paper. Like the idea that like the papers you tell, talk about like working in the cage and the coupons on the bond and stuff like that. Like the idea that that, that you were front and center for that as a kid getting that was your mold and then you were able to navigate from that seamlessly to this digital world and this whole new you went from 13 different you know to before the euro i can't imagine having 13 different different you know currencies to to knuckle around with okay <laughs> yeah but that to me is that that arc is just astounding and the stories that you guys have and morris's experience at cbot and, and the same thing with that analog and pen and paper it's just it just to me is just the sweet spot, the kill zone that you can carry that into today. Um, I, I will say one thing, though. It was really like you're, what we're talking about it was very early in my career. And, like we, you know, we you know, I know you're always interested in training. It's like I was still very much figuring it out. And I, I do think that it, it took me, a, you know, several years way past this point to sort of really understand what I was doing. I mean, I like I said, I had the appetite for it. I had some acumen for it, but you really, it, it really takes a while to sort of 
sort out who you are as a as a professional and as a trader. Did you have a guy? Did you have a mentor? Did someone take you under their wing? Because like Morris talks about how he had made guys that helped him out from the beginning. He talks about Johnny Musso or Charlie D, how he had some big guys in his corner early. Did you have someone like that? I had I had I had one or two people like when I started, you know, like I said, one was a very different, two very different guys. One was a very technical driven trader, one was a very fundamental driven trader. And I was like, you know, you know, Gilligan on the on the boat. And uh those guys, I wouldn't say they look after me, but I did learn a tremendous amount from them. And, uh, you know, part, I mean, part of the reason I didn't have someone like that is like, uh, as I've said, like, I was really bad at playing politics and, you know, that, you know, whatever, that did not work to my benefit. And, uh, you know, so I was very much, which was good because ultimately I became, you know, self-actualized. I had to figure stuff out on my own and it took me, it took me a couple of years, but I did. And then, you know, what I did learn, you know, I got to own. No, oh, that's great. Um, because now it seems nowadays it seems like if you you have to kiss ass and be a yes man, you know, you have to follow some rules and the politics drives more. You know, I know the P and L is what drives the employment and your but the the politics game not always. Let me tell you. The notion <laughs> that Wall Street is a meritocracy is a myth. So, so after this investment bank, what's your next stop? So now you're in Manhattan. I, I go to, I get recruited by a, a big merchant bank, uh, gotcha. to, uh, you know, which they really position themselves like, you know, this is not about customers. This is not about salespeople. This is about traders. So I was there for a while. And unfortunately, I was thinking about this today. So this was like 1992, 93. And what 1993 is, I like to call this year, pigs could fly. When, you know, everybody was long uh, global bonds and everybody became a proprietary trader. And if you became a proprietary trader, you bought Italian bonds and you bought Italian bonds. They went up every day. And if you bought the Danish auction and went up every day. So uh, uh, but what happened is and I remember the day it was like um, it was March. 19, so 1993, your pigs could fly. And then 1994, I think I remember it was a Friday. And uh, I remember because it was like an unemployment number and I, I had a lot of risk on whatever, you know, I, you know, mm-hmm. column A, column B, column C, whatever. Yeah. And uh, the number comes out at 830 and whatever. And, you know, it's regular nonsense. And then at nine o'clock, Alan Greenspan gets on the tape. And um, I think I'm pretty sure it's February because it was the winter. And uh, says something basically about changing either the reserve requirements, something about basically insinuating that, you know, the party's over. And uh, it was, I, I had a great day, mm-hmm. let me tell you, but the bank did not have a great day. Wow. And uh, it was, you know, what like I could say in hindsight, what happened was, um, in hindsight, what happened, like the bank ended up losing between February and that day in March, whatever, like $200 million, which sounds pretty quaint today. <laughs> Not but at, back then it was real money and they just like shut down all the proprietary trading and it was like shitstorm, yeah. whatever. And um, and um, that was sort of like the end of everybody's career uh, along the bond market. And uh, so I, I kind of got a sense that this was not a great situation moving forward. And I, I, I and I had, a, like I like to say, a childhood friend who was working at Greenwich Capital, and they knew that they were, for whatever reason, they were in, needed a currency trader, another currency trader. So I went there and uh, I interviewed and, of course, like, was really rude to the president of the firm because... You know, <laughs> Isn't he, you know, like, a, a renowned nice guy, too? <laughs> no, not this one. No, this, okay. is pre, this predates him. Okay. And, you know, he's telling me about... Oh, you know, well, we're a relative value shop. We do this and that. And like, I go, you know, listen, at the end of the day, you're either long or short the market. Like you can tell me, you can dress it up any way you want. But uh, so, but they ended up offering me a job. And I, I I think I turned it down at first because again, I'm trying to make as many bad career decisions as I can in the span of 40 years. And um, something, and then I sort of changed my mind and then they say, you know, why, why don't you go out to, to dinner with some of the fellows? And that's, you know, when I found a famous meeting the first time I meet Morris. And uh, this is March, probably of 1994. Okay. 
Yeah, wow. So March of '94, and you go out with Envy, and is is he the big shot then? No, I mean I don't. Certainly bigger than me, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, he's had a, he has a big. He's got a real job. Like I didn't even understand. Like I when I got there, nobody talked to me for like the first eighteen months anyway, other than Morris and a couple of guys. But he was um, he. I like to say we were colleagues, but that's not true because he had a much bigger job than me and way more successful than I was. But we were sort of, you know, we were we were pals. We worked out together. We went to the gym together. Oh. And um, but uh, what happened was at some point he took over the international bond trading and they didn't know what to do with me anyway. So they said, oh, well, you do international stuff like, you know, start talking to him. So uh <laughs> I don't know if he became my boss officially or unofficially because at that point, because I still might have been reporting to his partner and that, you know, then he started had a much bigger job because he was running the uh, relative value book or the five-year basis book, whatever that I still don't understand it. Uh, and, um, you know, and I would start sitting in on meetings with him and, uh, you know, we, we were always, even before we were working together, we had, we were very um, kindred spirits. We felt we had a real, um, you know, we were real friends very early on and we would, you know, for some, for some reason, which obviously stood the test of time, you know, but, uh, you know, we, we really got each other early on in the, in the, in the game. And that's then, fascinating you know, to me. That's fascinating to me that like for 18 months, you you went to work and just, and just nobody was like that culture. wasn't there. They know it wasn't, it wasn't warm and fuzzy. Well, no. I, and again, because I was not, I, I was doing, it was great because I was like an independent contractor. I just, had my book, I was trading currencies. My life did not impact anybody else's. I, at that point, nobody saw any value in me, you know, which was fine. Uh, it was great though, because I got very good and at my job because I just had myself to concentrate on and I just did my job and I got good at it. But I, I like to joke, there was one year, like the second year I was there, I made a bunch of money and no one knew, right? Other than my boss, Morris's trading partner uh, at the time. And they put something in the annual report about, uh, you know, plus, you know, we've had extraordinary results in foreign currency trading. And like the day after that thing came, like, oh, this guy comes over. How you doing? What are you thinking? What are you up to? You know, so like once once you show that, you know, you yep. might be able to help somebody else make some money there, yep. people have a lot more time for you. But then you left. Then you left, right? You said you, you had enough of it? <laughs> uh, I was there for a couple of years. I was there for like five years. And then uh, I want, you know, I, I kind of felt like I'd sort of exhausted my runway there. And I went to work for a big hedge fund, uh, brand name hedge fund for a while, uh, mostly equity. Again, I was a fish out of water because they were mostly an equity shop. And I, again, I was doing currencies. But so they sat me with the international equity traders because yeah. that makes sense. Uh, and uh, I worked there for a little while, and then eventually a group of us left, and we were funded by, you know, the the guy who um, whose uh, fund it was. That was the deal. If you ever left to start something you knew, he had a clause in your contract that he could have fifty percent capacity in whatever new venture you had. Nice. So that's the way he protected himself from people leaving. Interesting. Interesting. Is that when? Now, did you? Did you? embrace the stock market and equities when you got there because you, you no, i should have i should have again another career mistake like because they wanted me to the the main guy is like eh, what are you fuck you doing there come and sit and trade equities with us and i and i did not do that but it was fine like i i have no regrets don't get me wrong now, my life is ended up exactly where it was supposed to be but but you traffic in the you traffic in the stock market now you deal you dab i know i've been in i'm very lucky like I know this is what you're interested in. Uh, I I I have always trafficked in the stock market, and I am, but I've always been an investor in the stock market. I and uh, uh, I, the one good quality I have is that I was always able to silo off my equity investments as one thing, and my trading and my speculating and all the other nonsense I do in something else. And the equities were in a bucket that I just, I was, I fattened myself a long time ago as a long-term investor and that's what I am. And it's worked out really swimmingly for me, thankfully, you know, and, uh, but part of the reason is because I don't fuck around. You know, I like, I try to buy good companies and I hold on to them for long, long periods of time. And then I get the benefit by the miracle of compounding. 
you talk about when you worked at that investment bank, um, that was around the time that uh, Microsoft IPO'd. Can I ask you if you bought some Microsoft early, like around the time of the IPO? <laughs> I bought the, the I bought very few of those things at the IPO. Okay, but I bought a lot of them shortly thereafter. So <laughs> I, 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 the only the only one I, I bought at the IPO, and I no longer own, uh, is Facebook. And I bought it and I held it for a long time and I did great. But most of the other ones, like. I, you know, they were I they were really volatile, and I said, "Oh, if they're so volatile, and no one knows what they're worth, so they're maybe they're worth something." You know, like you know, I never tried to overthink it. So yeah, I yeah, so I never I bought very few in IPOs, but I own most of those names that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's just so fascinating. All right, so after your hedge fund, now you went out on your own. So you go out on your own after I, we went. It was sort of you know. It wasn't an epic fail, but it wasn't great. And then I was very fortunate. Uh, Morris repoed me back to Greenwich Capital. And then we had, and then he was very much my boss. And uh, I sat next to him and then we had a five or six year really good run together, which was fantastic for everyone. And it was I, really a pleasure. Five years you sat next to him and who? EG was there for the bulk of that? EG too? was there. EG was there. Sure. Robbie was there. You know, Amir was there. Uh, you know, you guys John, had, yeah, you, had you know, a bunch of other guys. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a really, as Morris described, it was really um, a unique situation because one is you had very smart people, people knew to stay in their lane, yet were very generous with their ideas across lanes. And um, you got a chance to, you know, you know, I like to say, like, sometimes you might not have the you might have the idea and somebody might be a better editor of that idea or you do something in one place and it'll turn up something else. And sometimes, you know, Morris likes to talk about like just being in the room together. Like you you could hear something and you process it and maybe just put it in your back pocket or in the back of your mind and it would turn up uh, at a later date and generate a trading idea for you. And that's, you know, if you're around with if you're around. Uh, smart people who are, you know, not assholes, you know, uh, and who are generous with their time and with their intellect, you know, you get tremendous economies of scale. And that's what we have. Yeah. To and, see, go ahead. No, just uh, to see that culture and the, the I'll use fraternity that, those, that you guys have and sat there for five years. I just can't imagine getting five guys today on the same page with the same out, you know, the same goal in mind and that same mutual respect where like, I couldn't get five guys together for a bike ride this afternoon without there being bickering or somebody doesn't get along with somebody or somebody's going to ride too fast or somebody's going to be late. Okay. But to get six guys in the trading off in, in the trading room and to be able to share an ideas and to have that kind of run, it, it's just a testament to, to, well, to some extent, it's a testament to Morris. And again, not to blow smoke up his ass, you know, because he's out in the Hamptons with a gin tonic. But it's, um, you know, if you if you choose the right people, it's like it's like not that we were, you know, and getting the chemistry right and hire. It's like hiring the right people in any job is, is a very tough thing to do. And to get people who uh, I won't say we didn't have egos. I mean, I think we all had pretty good egos, but it wasn't at the expense of anybody else. Yeah, no, it's just fascinating. And, and like EG to me was is, is a technical. I don't want to sell EG. You know, I can't speak to it, but to, to EG's a a nuts and bolts, dot the I's, cross the T's. I can I can decipher the chart. Whereas you, you know, you're more like the artist. I don't want, you know, again, I don't want to paint you with a, a different brush, but like you have you have that different kind of like gravitas and like Thank you. you're being you know, very kind. It, it's just a different vibe. Like, you know, like EG is not making your kids listen to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but like Ichi to me is like is nuts and bolts, whereas you were like the chef. Like it's just different. There's a like there's an artistic aspect to what you do, and like you bring a different approach. Um, you know, I don't want to say like street smart because that doesn't mean that EJ is not street smart. But like you're street smart. I think still think that that's that Queens background. That's that blue collar. That maybe that's why you didn't you know kiss ass in interviews, and and maybe didn't you know swim or or dance to a different different dr drum beat but like 
I, I just I just find that whole fascinating that dynamic that he could put those guys together because like number one Morris isn't easy to easy to get along with let alone like on a daily basis like there's like five days like five days sitting shoulder to shoulder with him like he he could be somewhat abrasive sometimes like he could be abrasive intimidating particular okay so there's a couple and a little bit quirky okay I'm not <laughs> as the listeners know as our audience knows right, your audience has been around for a while they they, right, they exactly. don't forget. But I gotta, I gotta imagine that was a lot of fun to be playing for the Yankees with a bunch of all stars. Is that kind of what it was like? To some extent, and like you know, I, I would like to say you know, I, and I've used this metaphor before. Like you know, I had you know my career is like it was very much a journeyman's career. Like I like to say, you know, never Derek Jeter, much more Scott Brogess. And you know, like I made an all star team every now and then, but. I was good in the clubhouse. You know, I, I knew my, I knew what I was good at. And I, and I, I focused on that. I didn't try to do stuff I wasn't good at. And, um, you know, the, the other thing is like, you know, what I think you're alluding to is that the idea is never to blow up and to live, to trade another day. And if you, and that was very much in the Greenwich capital mindset and very much in our group's mindset is like, no one was going to blow up the place. You know, that was not going to be acceptable. And, you know, if you lost money, you lost money. And, you you know, again, part of the deal. But, you know, live to trade another day. And I think that's what people misunderstand about, you know, people who take risks in the market. And, you know, you never want to put yourself in a position where you won't get a chance to play again. And I think that was very much ingrained in our group and, and to some extent ingrained, ingrained at Greenwich Capital as well. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by the culture there in that desk. I always think that it sounds like so much fun. I just picture you guys sitting there for four of you staring, four or five of you staring at a monitor with like Caddyshack playing up on the screen and just sitting around having a good old. A, you know, at some point you have to ask Morris, it may take a while to explain the lunch game because that was like, you know, the lunch flipping game, which is quite became that people kept data and ran regression analysis on who was paying for lunch over like a three yeah. or four year period of time. That was, you know, something for your audience to look forward to. Dude, he's made a he's made a point of like lunch was very important as a trader. He's made it like there's been a couple of times where he's made a big point. Like when he when he got his first job, he talks about them like there was a lunch order and he got to eat lunch at his desk. He was like, "Hey, I'm getting fed here. This is fantastic." And then later on, like, dude, he lights up like a Christmas tree if I mention like an Italian combo at lunch, and he's like, he's yeah. like, I used to have, I used to love an Italian. He tell he cut me off from Italian combos, but because you're an athlete, you cannot eat those anymore. All right, let me ask you this: what What's the yeah. best restaurant you've eaten at the city? Since you brought up food, I trust your opinion on matters like this. You live recently. In recently, yeah. I I was at I was invited as a guest. This is in a stupid, expensive place. I was a guest the other night to um, uh, a Japanese omakase um, omakase restaurant mm -hmm. called Toshino on three forty two uh, Bowery. Uh, that was pretty good. Um, where else have I eaten lately that's been good? I had another good meal recently. How was the omakase? How was the experience where you you show up and you're going to sit down, you're going to eat what's given to you, right? Yeah, I, I've had that a couple of places, a couple of times in other restaurants. Like I've eaten, I've been fortunate enough to eat in Masa a couple of times, which is quite extraordinary as well. Uh, I had a good meal recently. I'm trying to remember. I had a fun meal, uh, a fun meal, not a great meal, but a fun meal. At a place called Cafe Spaghetti in Brooklyn, which okay. was really good. And, okay. and where else? Uh, I think I had a, I had a really good meal uh, at a place called Claro, in, again in Brooklyn, where I, I drink a lot of mezcal. So if they have like a mezcal flights and a lot of mezcal, like I'm happy, you know, it's, I'm going to be happy anyway. But Claro was pretty fantastic. That place, Pacino, was next level. Like, you know, it was stupid. It was Got it. Got it. Got it. It was an experience. It was a dining experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Okay. No, that's great. That's great. I give you a lot of credit for sticking in the city and still in Brooklyn. You are still in Brooklyn. Like God. Like, Brooklyn's great. Brooklyn's I know. Great. I know. That's no fun. And you used to do the reverse commute. You commuted from Manhattan up to Greenwich. You are standing. For 17 up. years. For 17 yeah. years. No, that's yeah, like I, I, I like to say, um, well, the good thing was I, you left very early in the morning. So, you know, in the morning was nothing. And, you know, again, being somewhat of a independent contractor to some extent, like I made a point never to be at the office at four o'clock. So, but still going home could have been like an hour and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. There were, there were some disasters. And then, you know, there was a group of us that were commuting. So like I would call EG, tell him like, oh, the cops are at, you know, uh, at, the, at the bridge, you know, like we call each other. And you got a lot, of, you got a lot of tickets. We had a, we had a, 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 a attorney online to like, because eventually we, you know, you need, like you just get a lot of tickets, you know, and like, all right you want to talk about the market today because you're still active yeah. in the market. You, you yeah. Still... yeah yeah which market you want to talk about um well no, i'm always fascinated by like you you to me struck me as like you love the progressive equities and you're always sniffing around like you're you're very focused on the future um and you like some of the why like to me to me not speculative but like you you you've always got a good one up your sleeve and i just give me some of the fun stuff that you watch that you keep an eye well, on i i do i know this is going to upset any of your canadian listeners but i i do um i do pay attention to renewable energies uh so uh I, and I do have, you know, some exposure to those uh, companies, particularly when some of the wind companies and some of the utilities that are transitioning over. Um, and on balance, they've done well. Uh, you know, I, I've been recently, I'm, I'm down, I mean, I, I've made a commitment to a couple of lithium mining companies uh, down on all of them. Actually, it's down on three out of four of them. But I do think that's sort of a, uh, an interesting place to to forward thinking again you know some of this lends to my notion of where 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 the future is going so that you know those are the kind of things i'm paying attention to and two two is like i'm 64 years old so you know my heyday of stock market investing is in the past so i you know i look a lot of my portfolio balance where things are what my exposure is I buy now really super boring dividend paying stocks. I have a bunch of those, like not, not an insignificant amount, really super boring. I just don't want them to go down. Like I, what? I, like I what's boring? Like, give me an example. What's a boring dividend stock? Come on, give me one. Just give me some. Really? That's pretty boring. Um, I'll tell you, like I take my pad out. J and J, that's pretty boring. Totally. Um, MasterCard, that's pretty boring. J and J is a great one. PMG, pretty boring. Um, uh, Costco, pretty boring. Yeah, that's 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 one of my favorites. Okay, though Costco is awesome. I love Visa, it. pretty boring. Totally uh, love it. Then, and I got a bu- I have a bunch more, and one's more boring than the rest. So, all right, all right, all right. How about now? Let me get. You want to give your uh, your economic outlook? You want to give your uh, your analysis of the current environment, like the rate hikes? Do like do you have any strong I, opinions on I, anything? I am not an expert on the curve, like some of your colleagues, uh, but I do think that um, I came across this, and Morris and I talked about this a little while ago, and I think it's sort of playing out that I I, I don't see rate cuts anytime in the future. But I do think that the curve has to normalize. And I think there's a chance it normalizes. Like, I don't like, I watch the 10 year rate because it's something that's important. If you watch currencies, it's one of the benchmarks that drive currencies. So I watch the 10 year rate and I can imagine where, you know, we see continued rise in the 10 year rate and the curve sort of normalizes that way. Again, this is way out of my wheelhouse. So don't, listeners pay very little attention to this. But, um, I will I will say one thing though. Uh, you know, I am I was very steadfast steadfastly bullish the dollar for a long time, and I'm dramatically less so. So and that's a departure, and that's in my wheelhouse. So that's I don't know if that counts for anything. What, what what's changed? What has changed? What's changed your opinion? What facts changed that changed your opinion? Well, I do I do think that you know. I do think that this situation in Japan is relevant, where they actually have done something that they said they would not do for a long time, and it may not have any effect today or tomorrow, mm-hmm. but at some point that may have an effect. Again, I'm not on terra firma in all this, but you ask me for an opinion, I'll give you an opinion. Recession? We're going to get a recession? No clue. I'm as clueless as anybody else. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can, you know, I can tell you either side of that. that, yeah, that yeah, me I too. No, I, I know. And, and and it's a circular conversation on a dead end street until the end of the year. You know, um, 
we got a CPI print this week that doesn't, we'll find out more then. Um, any so, one of these prints, any one of these prints is not relevant in its own, you know, it makes for, makes for good TV shows and, you know, a little volatility, but I'm not sure it means anything one print or another. Tell me what you're doing today. Walk me. What are you doing now? Like, like, give me now. now well, I, I, I spend most of the, well, I, I got up early. I did work out today, which was great. And uh, I spent a good chart of the day in terror waiting for two o'clock to roll around to talk to you. So that most of my day was filled with terror. And, uh, you know, we had some people over last night for dinner. So uh, I cleaned up this morning. I had to clean up a little. I don't do, I don't clean up any glasses night of the event because, uh, you know, you know how that turns out. No, I want you to do, a, I want you to do it now a 10 minute commercial for your, for your current endeavor, what you're doing. Oh, you're you. very kind. I want I want the website. I want the website. I want the whole spiel because now because what you're doing now, you just you just I just wasted an hour of your time. But you do this for a living is guiding, guiding powerful, influential people like myself. So like when I when I had pester you with my emails, I should have gotten a bill for all of the guidance and and information that you have like, you're like my like honestly like it's the, the closest i'll come to having two rabbis is leslie and morris okay thank you you're very very kind one's one's the grand rabbi and the other one's an also ran oh. um but thank you that's a very kind of you i i i for the last 10 years i've been working as an executive coach and uh, so i have a what I like to say is a robust uh, private practice. I work with a lot of different kinds of people, architects, financial people, lawyers. Uh, sometimes I in-house at a couple of firms. Uh, but at this juncture, I, like you very kindly said, I work generally work with very senior leadership uh, at various, some investment firms and again, some marketing firms, some media people. And it's like, a, you know, if you're, sometimes you're stuck and I have to get unstuck, you know, sometimes, you know, someone's been managing $500 million and now they're managing $2 billion. And it's not about trading stuff. It's just sort of about, you know, getting out, helping people get out of their own way, you know, but, you know, more importantly, like sometimes I work with people who are, you know, they're managing, you know, a hundred people. Now they're managing 400 people and they've jumped two levels at the, uh, in the org chart. And how do you, how do you, how do you let them function better? And it's just really a way to help people stay out of their own way. And, uh, it's hard to say because all the relationships I have, they're all very unique among each one to themselves, but it's, you know, uh, it's a very interesting work because you're really helping people. Like someone says to you, like, I don't know where I'd be without you in my career. Well, that's a lot better than moving a billionaire's, you know, equity a 10th of a basis point at this point in my life. But uh, it's it's very gratifying work and it's super interesting. And I get to meet really, really smart, accomplished people at this point. Like I'm, you know, I'm working with some folks in the middle of the country now, huge investors in, you know, uh, in life sciences and energy and, you know, finance and, you know, raising capital. And, you know, it's just, it's a, and again, but then there's just like, oh, you know, I run a global architecture firm. Like I, you know, I'd like a little life song to talk to. And uh, it, it's very different. Each each relationship is different. And uh, there's no website. It's sort of everything's by referral. So I am on LinkedIn if you want to find me. But uh, it's um, I'm very lucky at this juncture because I've built up enough equity among enough people that, you know, the, the work comes my way. Yep. So. Yeah. Dude, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I do, brother. I always need a little feedback. We did an hour. We did an hour. It's over. That what? What was that? Was that? How easy was that? Okay. It, it was really painless, and you made it really kind. And uh, you know, like I said, I get a lot of love on this program, and uh, I'm not sure all of it is deserved, but I really it makes me happy to listen. And uh, you know, you guys are doing a great job, and it's like a, it's a real thing. You guys created a real thing. Dude, I like I I said I couldn't do it without you. You like you answering my emails always and just it's just fantastic. And I've learned so much from you as like I, I've told Morris a hundred times. He's kept me away from knuckle around knuckling around in crypto, and you kept me from shorting Carvana. Okay, and you absolutely kept your foot on my head and kept me underwater. Okay, 
drowned me in the Tesla debate. Okay. So it has just been an absolute honor and pleasure for you to entertain me um, and to come on the show. And like, who am I? I'm nobody. And you have actually, you've blessed me with so much market wisdom that like every day, a day in the market, here's how good it is. A day in the market can't go by where I don't take something you or MB said into account. Okay. So when you make that kind of impact on my life, I am sure there's listeners out there inside baseball cast at Gmail. There's listeners out here that listen to a hundred episodes and they feel like they know you because you've given us so many pearls of wisdom. We've talked about you so much. Um, so I want to really, really thank you for all of that. Thank I want to thank coming on the show and your wife. And so you thank Pam. Number one, I still owe her for the, all right, this is how good of a person Leslie is folks. You know what he got my kid when, when my kid was born, he got my kid a onesie with a magnet up the front. So there's no zipper. Okay. There's no buttons in the middle of the night. He got me a magnetic onesie. That's how good of a guy, how on the ball him and his wife, Pam are. And that's why I wanted to have him on the show. And that's why Morris sat next to him for all those years. And I knew you were going to be good. Um, and I appreciate it. So let me, let, uh, let me, I, I want to shout out to you and to Morris and like, you know, besides being, you know, a great professional, I mean, we've been friends a long time and, you know, he's, uh, you know, He's way more than what appears on this podcast. You know, he comes off. He's an extraordinary person, and uh, I love him dearly. Me too. I appreciate it, pal. How, you 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 enjoy your afternoon. You can you can come and listen. Tell your wife thank you again because she she got the ball rolling. So thank you, Pam. Yeah, she she said I was I was on the fence, and she said you have to do it. So uh, <laughs> you did it, pal. It was awesome, and I and I'll see you soon. Thank you, Leslie. Yeah, bye. bye. All right.